Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 33, and going through verse 16 of Exodus 13. Basic details regarding this Torah portion obviously discusses two primary topics. The topics being uh, the leaven, unleavened bread, the nature of that, and how that is consumed and annual service for that part portion, as well as the nature of the unleavened, sorry, the nature of the uh, redeeming the firstborn and how to Sanctifiers that have set them aside. In our Torah portion, these two topics are the dominant section for this holy day, our first day of unleavened bread. In the first day of unleavened bread, you cover the nature of unleavened bread, what was used for, as well as for redemption of firstborns and set them aside. We have to ask ourselves, uh, what is the nature of Why would God set, set these aside? And what is the importance of combining these two together on this holy day? I should point out there are two different breakdowns that are just displayed here in our Torah portion, the 11 bread, as well as redeem or sanctify the firstborn. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 33 through 39, as well as 13, verse 6 to 10, discuss unleavened bread, the topics about that, uh, how it's made, the leavening and unleavened bread, that type of thing. But uh, in a dispersion, uh, chapter 13, the first five verses, 1 through 5, as well as 11 to 16, discusses a firstborn, a firstborn males, and clean animals, and donkeys, and details of that nature. So I'm going to attempt to go through these, hopefully not too exhaustively, but uh, they'll go through some of the important details. But this this point out that the nature of the bread, of course, bread of, of haste is quickly made, unlike regular bread, of course, which is, has sourdough or is a leavened product with yeast. It's made, it takes time. You mix it all together and it takes time to set. And then we're designed for not doing that. And of course, we'll discuss also the types of leaven. Uh, there are multiple types of leaven types referring to metaphorical or symbolic types or spiritual types as well. I use those interchangeably. Uh, as far as leaven versus what unleavened actually is and then what unleavened is supposed to be. So to discuss those two topics, and we will also attempt to discuss the redeeming the firstborn. Now there's a different section, different categories of firstborn. We have firstborn males, of course, once they're set aside, but there's the clean offering of animals, clean animals, the firstborn. Then there are unclean animals, and of course, specifically, which seems strange at first, the nature of firstborn unclean animals is distinctly separate from the firstborn of a donkey. The donkey has broken out into its own subject matter, its own category, which is, seems abnormal at first because we think of unclean animals as being, well, they're all unclean. The firstborn of, whether it be a donkey or some other unclean animal, a horse or whatever, uh, does it really matter, or a camel? Does it matter whether it's a uh, What's so special about the donkey versus the other unclean service animals? Let's discuss that a bit. The donkey is a very important symbol within the Torah, as well as within inside the the New Testament as well. So covers it both. We'll hopefully get through all that as best we can. Uh, If you have any questions, again, try to flag me down or flag Jeff down or flag somebody down. Do you have a question about this, this process? So to begin... Unleavened bread, bread of haste. 
in there's there's a pretty simple basic connection we can see with right with inside the Torah portion of Judge Twelve. It's really simple, pretty obvious to most people. Uh, the New Testament also discussed the same topic in its own way, but it, it it's pretty straightforward. In Exodus 33 through 37, 34, sorry, uh, it says, and compare that to verse 39 of all of Exodus chapter 12. There's a connection between uh, the separation of Israel being put out of land in haste, as well as Egypt driving them out and couldn't delay. So in both instances, we, the, the, the language being used for Israel being driven out quickly and Egypt trying to drive them out quickly are both associated. So we have the nature of bread being made because it's done quickly because they had no time. The quote, uh, the, it says the Egyptians urged, this is verse uh, 33, 34, uh, chapter 12. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of land in haste. That, that's bolded in my little text here. For they said, we'll all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with Indian bowls bound up their clothes on their shoulders. So we have the, the Egyptians urged the people to get them out of land in haste, try to get them out quickly because they're, 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 they're afraid. We also have the connecting verse. Uh, verse 39, it says, and they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes, eleven bread, for it not become leaven, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay. So you have the nature of being driven out of Egypt, being not under delay, you could not slow down of Egypt, as well as the, uh, the being driven during the, 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 uh, uh, the land, the bread being made because they did not have time to do so. So the nature of a separation being created here, the nature of Israel being driven out being divided out or separated out from Egypt's society and the bread being made unleavened versus what is leavened. So nature's leaven is obviously what is left behind, the nature of Egypt being left behind. That is means or that has time to, to grow leavened bread. Note that Israel is the one who ate unleavened bread. The Egyptians did not eat unleavened bread. They still had bread, that which the plagues did not destroy, had bread to make and to consume. So they were left behind to obviously the Israelites being left out. The New Testament discusses a similar topic uh, for other reasons, and we'll get to that shortly. What I want to point out here is that, so if God has separated out Egypt as being leavened and Israel to be unleavened or to be separated out, they're, they're being driven out quickly, that I'd be going out quickly to divide the two of them up. Why or what? What are the what is the components or details of each that make them leavened versus Israel making them unleavened? Well, we have a few details that the Torah gives us. One, Leviticus eighteen discusses, actually, the whole chapter discusses this. Discusses the nature or conduct of Egypt and one of the primary issues God had with Egypt. Now, mind you, God still loves the Egyptians but there is a weakness or a serious problem that they have. Yes, we have the entire Torah portion that discussed the, the last or earlier Exodus, discussed the nature of Egypt's, the proudness of their king regarding Pharaoh. There's also some conduct issues that Egypt has that was within inside the individual people. So Lewis 18 discusses this, verse 18, it introduces the, the, the topic of misconduct of sexual nature. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You should not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You should not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live according, according with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. 
So he separates himself saying, hey, there's conduct that I want to divide out or separate out between you and the Egyptians. If you intermingle the same conduct together, you are no different. You are actually the same. So the whole point of drawing them out and quickly in haste to divide them out will be defeated if they then return and act like or, or pursue the nature of what the Egyptians do and how they live. Number 18, it says, uh, verse 6, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his, of his to uncover its nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall uncover, for the nakedness is yours. This whole chapter continues on, all the various, I'm not going to have the various component here. But this continued topic of the nature of conduct of the people, you could obviously read all of Leviticus 18, this is all the various uh, inappropriate uh, contexts. But the nature of what all of these is to make yourself that you do not act like or perform the conduct of the Egyptians. So even though you leave Egypt, if you take Egypt with you by continuing continue on their conduct, you have not actually left. Though you left it quickly, you really didn't leave at all because you act the same. Nothing changed. Your conduct matched Egypt. You might as well have stayed in Egypt at that point. To the end of Leviticus 18, this is for jump down to verse 24, is also the consequence of leavening of Egypt and Canaan. Verse 24 to 18 of Leviticus says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nation I am casting out before you have become defiled. The land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations. Neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So the land will not spew you out, should you defile it. As out the nation which has been before you. For whosoever does any these abominations, those persons who shall do who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge, that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. See, we have an iteration, reiteration that God is interested in our conduct, conduct problems. Yes? Any comment? Sorry. Guess not. So we're going through these conducts, these natures of Egypt. This problem that Egypt has of both their sexual conduct, which note, this includes the people of Canaan, but this is God had combined them both. So their conduct is the same as far as how they conduct themselves. Um, they're, they're, they all both act similarly or the same. In the case of this instance, this conduct, this is not uh, We note that in the New Testament times, the same problem is still there. This is really important to note, really important to pay attention to, that in the New Testament times, we have the apostles in particular, uh, we have a scenario in which people have left their, quote, sin behind them. I mean, they left their Egypt, they pulled out their Egypt, they pulled out their, their misconducts, pulled out their leavening, pulled out their proudness, whatever you should wish to word it. But then we have a scenario that pops up in 1 Corinthians 5 
that discusses the same topic coming back again. Meaning that even though you understand moral and immoral behavior, and even though you accept Jesus Messiah or not, doesn't change the fact that you still have to watch your conduct. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 discusses this precise scenario, which I find fascinating that Apostle Paul discusses this because uh, this, this immoral deed he addresses is actually talked about within both the Torah. The Torah actually talks about it twice. Well, I'll tell you three times. Uh, the talk, sorry, I talked about it three times. The Torah talks about it twice uh, regarding this particular conduct. And it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, is actually reported there is immoral, immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so this one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I am my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan, the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved the day of the Lord Jesus. So in this statement, we have this listing, this immorality even listed among the Gentiles. This is fascinating because it is listed in our Torah. We have the scenario where uh, Jacob's son, Reuben, uh, had his father's wife, Bilhah, we have that snare, which is a son has his father's wife, which is obviously an extended or which uh, loses, or Reuben as a result, loses his inheritance or right as a firstborn as a result of it. We have obviously the scenario in which we just read in Leviticus 18, discussed that this is what the Egyptians the, the, the and the Canaanites do. And I find this fascinating because the Egyptian Canaanites, by definition, are a type of Gentile. Now, he lists here that this conduct is not even mentioned among the, doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. He must be referring to not the Canaanites nor the Egyptians because the conduct was listed there. He must be referring to another group of Gentiles. I presume he's referring to the Greek Gentiles or possibly Roman. It's an assumption on my part, uh, but that is not listed among them with how it is Egyptian and the Canaanite because God lists them. Of course, we have the third instance, which is discussed in the Tanakh with uh, David's son, Absalom, who has, I believe it's 10, these 10, it takes 10 of his father's concubines uh, and, and uses them out in the display of all the people. This scenario, of course, we have this son, son having his father's wife at various times in, in our Torah, which seems to be most dominant among the Israelites. <laughs> in certain instances, the examples we give versus the Gentiles. Uh, it's quite abhorrent but the nature of the behavior itself is still there. Now, that's just the backdrop because the topic that Apostle Paul is addressing, though, yes, it is the, it's in the context of someone having sexual misconduct, which is against the Torah, specifically, you do not do so things. His address here is more narrowed down. Though, yes, he's addressing that particular individual. Yes, they would be cast out. They be destroyed, that their flesh be destroyed, that his spirit be saved, that it is better, in other words, this is a paraphrasing, I use the word paraphrasing loosely, that better off his flesh die than his spirit die. Another way of saying it, that if you are punished in this life for your mistakes, it is better for you than punished in this next life for your mistakes. Hopefully that makes sense to everybody. And the nature of, just like 
King David had done with Joab, uh, it would be better off that Joab die in this life, the life where he was on by, by, by the hand of King Solomon, that Joab die for his execution of Abner as well as um, the second person. Also, I forgot the name. Better off they die in this life while he's still alive rather than live his life and die of old age. And then the second life when he's resurrected, God said, now it's time to be punished for what you've done. So David realized it is better to die in this life for your mistakes than it is to die in the next life for your mistakes. Paul, Paul Ritter, similar type of principle, better off to cast them out and deliver them to his destruction of his flesh so that he die and be a, away from you, that he pay for his crimes to speak in this life so that his spirit, meaning his next life, he has the option of being saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, continue on, it says, uh, verse 5, or chapter 5, uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, those you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean at all, did not at all mean with immoral people of this whole world for with covetousness and swindlers and idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So in this instance, the chapter 5, it discussed that, yes, this immoral person must be disassociated with you, but the leavening he's referring to, to here is the behavior or the conduct, the reaction of the people themselves, not necessarily the individual who did the wicked thing. So in this case, it's the people. Uh, it's like, for example, forgiving of all sins, which God, of course, which God can do, uh, which men cannot do. The nature that, well, I forgive everybody, therefore, yeah, I'm great, and or I'm, I'm, you puff yourself up because of how many people are the, the, the list of conduct. For example, if I go about and list on all these sins, and I have a laundry list of sins. Look how great God is; He saved me for all these sins. Um, and that is not necessarily a positive thing. And that I am boasting about the great things that God has saved you for, which is not necessarily wrong to be pleased or, or, or thrilled or happy or excited the fact you were released from sins. The nature is to boast about them. Uh, it, it is a, is a self-inflating uh, sequence. In the case of this instance, which the people of Corinth were doing, that they were pleased themselves. They see this individual, of course, is a, has done these bad conduct things. And because we you know, believe in God and believe in Jesus and we've been saved from our sins and we forgive sins, we have grace and all the kind of great stuff, we then give that grace, give that forgiveness upon the person. See, so we're doing great things. Uh, that's not the intent. The intent is not to just uh, to dish out grace to every person, or different to every person, and therefore we're all happy and, and, and happy family. That was not the objective. The objective was, for those who intend or are attempting to actually do things that is moral, trying to do that are positive. And the nature of forgiveness is when you are attempting to do something positive or good and you make a mistake. That's when you forgive forgive the mistakes that I may return and do something better again or to improve. If you don't do that, you are living your sin. You are just continuing on in your process of how I wish to live my life. Nothing changes, or it should be just as evil as it always was. 
right? God forgives, you know, once forgiven, always forgiven type of thing. That's not the intent or the desire of our God, because that would be an unjust God. Uh, his desire is for us to live conduct or proper lives. So for us, this, so this the nature of what we have in the book of, uh, of Leviticus listed regarding the conduct of Egypt, the, the nature of sins, the personal sins, the sexual sins they had dealing with, and that God wanted a quick separation of them. That immoral conduct is still continuing on all the way through, you know, 1,500 years later, uh, the same process, nothing has really changed. The people are still doing the same thing. And whether or not you believe in Jesus or not doesn't change your conduct. Your conduct is still relevant. Uh, watch what you do. It matters. And those around you, because it affects them too. As possible Paul points out, he doesn't want you to associate with people who are immoral in this capacity. Uh, not the, you associate with anybody else who does something wrong. The point is those who are attempting to be a brother, to be a follower of God, to not associate with them. And it's old, the same old adage. Uh, does good corrupt evil? Does evil corrupt good? Uh, if you continue on with you are being good, other people are evil and surround them. As Solomon pointed out, you are known by your associates. If you don't know a man, know his friends. If you know his friends, then you know the man. So if you are not an immoral person, but you hang out with immoral people, you are immoral. Not so that you are actually doing an act of immorality necessarily, but you are associating with them. So it appears you are condoning such conduct and it will, like it or not, will always rub off on you. Eventually, you will start weakening down. Uh, it's no different than an army that attacks a, a, a well, well-designed fortress. Given enough time, the fortress will eventually be torn down. It takes time, but eventually we'll get there. No matter how good your defenses are, you have to still be aware, be on guard for them. So leavening has its nature of both conduct as well as how you perceive or how you celebrate the great things you've done with God and God has done for you. They both can be leavened. There are types of leaven, though, as well, we're discussing. Uh, leaven is not isolated just to your uh, bad, not, not doing bad things. Uh, there's other things you could also have leavening as well. In this case, the Messiah himself discusses a few different types of leaven. One of them, Matthew 16. Matthew 16 uh, discusses the different types of leaven that Messiah had, had addressed and attempted to warn the, his apostles or disciples from that there's a type of leaven he wanted to be, be aware of. In Matthew 16, jumping down to verse 5, it lists the disciples came to the other side. They just had an interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees a few moments earlier in, in, in Matthew 16. We're kind of jumping in toward the end of that conversation, and we're, he's now talking to his disciples about it. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And he said to them, watch out and beware of the love of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I'm jumping through because I'm not going to read the whole discussion between they have. So the tail end of verse uh, 11, 12 says, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is an interesting problem. Because unlike the scenario we just read regarding Apostle Paul, as well as the scenario we read in Leviticus 18, which is a conduct issue, how do you conduct yourself in a sexual manner versus a non-sexual manner, and how you interact with people who are in that scenario, this is the opposite extreme. So we have two different narrow ways. There is a way which you can uh, go down into the gutter, so to speak, of a conduct, a way which you can go the opposite side, you've fallen off of the other direction, and then you've, you went so extreme that you, you fell into the other traps, so to speak, of lifting yourself up. There's a problem that Pharisees and Sadducees had, as well as the scribes as well. It's not all, mind you. I'm referred to as a group, a loving of themselves and puffing themselves up. 
in the, the love which they had, they had a love which was a glory of men, a glory of themselves. Now, I want to distinguish the differences here is that you have a glory that God puts upon you, which is his own glory, but this glory that men put upon you, uh, and that so one man praises another man for either his conduct or some great thing he's done or hasn't done, or looks up to a man. That is not the conduct that God is looking for. It's called what men look for. Because men like to look to make themselves look high in the, for, in the sight of others. May 23 discusses this topic. May 23, uh, is jumping to verse 4, discusses the love and referring to men's glory, the type of lifting one of, of a men's side of glory. Matthew 23, starting verse 4, it says, They tie up, referring to uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, and rabbis, they tie up heavy burdens and lay upon them men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassel of the garments. They love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats of synagogues, and respectful greetings in marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ, the anointed. But the greatest among you should be your servant. Whoever exalts himself should be humbled, and whoever humbles himself should be exalted. So in this instance, we have the second type of leaven that is addressed in the New Testament, the type of leaven of lifting someone oneself up in the eyes of other men. And the idea that if anybody looks up to me or looks, I'm, I'm, I have a dominant place over them, I can, I, I can be looked up to and be powerful in that respect. I'm sure most of you have experienced in your lives at least some point or another, where someone looked up to you, whether it be a child, whether it be a coworker, whether it be a friend or a family member, looked at you for one reason or another. Regardless of whether it was right or wrong, how did it make you feel when someone looked up to you? When they thought that you were the smartest or the best or you had some great wisdom they needed from you? It makes you feel pretty good, generally. It's like, hey, this person has come to me and, and they think I have something to give to them. That, that's wonderful. And it makes you feel good, which is nothing wrong with that. That's normal. That's normal behavior. But the drawback is it continues on. As more and more people continue to look up to you, it continues to build you up. And this is the issue he's referring to, the teachings of which they, they follow through. The issue of the Sadducees and Pharisees, you want this process, the idea of I will be lifted up the more I impart my knowledge, my wisdom, my great whatever God's given me, or, or I learned for myself, whatever your wisdom happens to be, uh, that I'll be continually lifted up. Uh, we have that problem with politics pretty regularly politicians in particular, being looked up and try to be as if they were in charge or in control. The point is they're not. This is the glory of men. It's not the glory that God is after or wants from us, but it's still leaven. Uh, it's type of the opposite, opposite end of leavening. It's the opposite. We had the first end we discussed that Paul talked about was the leavening of, hey, I forgive everybody, therefore I'm great. Um, and this is the other end of it. Well, I do everything perfect, therefore I'm great. Well, neither one are actually great. They both have their weaknesses. Now, there's another form of loving that our, uh, that our uh, prophets discuss. Uh, Amos brings this type of loving up. Now, this is a loving of a different form. I bring all these loving types up because if we don't have a good understanding of all different kinds of leavening, we can slip into one or the other and not realize it. So Amos, in chapter 4, discusses a different kind of leavening that he addresses. So we have all the different types so far. We have leavening of obviously your conduct, how you conduct yourself and your sexual matter that we learned from Egypt, as well as leavening of the, the Paul talks, talks about, the uh, 
the overwhelming forgiveness of all things, regardless of whether who and what they are in association with those who are, are, are corrupt individuals. With the leavening of those who are uh, looking at how great they are, how, how righteous they happen to be is leavening as well. Well, in this case, Amos just has a different kind. They're going to leavening, which is a little bit associated. I say a little bit because it's not a positive thing. Uh, with the one that uh, Math, the book of Matthew discusses, but it's on a different different scale. In Amos chapter 4, it says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches of the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast into Hermon, declares the Lord. Now, I'm going to stop there. Pause there for a minute. So in this instance, we have the, a different type of person being characterized. I refer to the cows or press the poor. So this leavening is a form of oppression or crushing or putting low upon those who are in need, lifting yourself up with the process. Thing one, it says, enter Bethel and transgress in Gilgal and multiply your transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leaven and proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, they were going into a sarcastic section here. Um, God is not above sarcasm in any capacity. Uh, he used it quite thoroughly. So in this instance, he discusses entering Bethel and transgressing, transgression, and he brings up the category of you, you, you're, 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 you're combining transgressions, which is obviously your, your mistakes, your errors that you willfully know, but you, know, you try not to, so to speak, but you, you can't help yourself. He combines them to the fact that in your sacrifices every morning, well, that's, that's a command. Well, that's a good thing, right? And your tithes every three days, well, that's, that's actually more frequent. You're, you're going above and beyond the Torah in, the, in that capacity. Offer a thank offering also, which is leavened. Well, that's against the Torah. And proclaim freewill offerings. Well, that's a positive thing. And make them known. Okay, you're telling everybody, you're advertising. So you love to do, you sons of Israel. Well, in this category, we have Amos 4, the first five verses, discuss a kind of person who is using the appearance or a semi-appearance of good or positive things, positive things in the form of Torah referring to, but use them to oppress or destroy those who are below them. Uh, this is a, a, a great scenario. You have a combined of those who make an appearance of what is positive, but are using it as a heavy oppression to destroy those who are in need. Now, I say that was is loosely connected, semi-similar to what Messiah addressed, Messiah did not claim, however, they are breaking a Torah command, which is what Amos obviously says they are. Messiah pointed they weren't breaking Torah command per se. They were just lifting themselves up in men's eyes. And Amos, however, they're mixing both Torah commands and Torah commandments to not do and combining them together and allow not so much to lift, some, lift other people's eyes up to them, but rather to, in order to oppress or take over or bring low others who are poor or needy or need help. This is a different type of leaven, but it's still a legitimate form. It is a capacity which you have the form of holiness, but you aren't holy. You have the appearance what is right, but you aren't right. 
you have the desire to make people think or, or perceive you're teaching well or you're acting well, but you are not. You have ulterior motives behind your behavior, what you're trying to do. Those ulterior motives, that is your leveling up. You're lifting yourself up in that capacity, which again is a problem that Amos addresses. Let's move on a little bit beyond the type of leavening to go to what is unleavened. So we have the idea that God wants us to separate from these things. We listed three different kinds of leavening. The, the personal, physical, sexual conduct that Egypt had, was known for, well known for. We have the capacity of lifting oneself up. The Apostle Paul pointed out of how well you forgive everybody who makes mistakes. And we have the capacity, the four times, capacity which the, the uh, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees did, which is to Listen up because of how holy they are, that people will then glorify them in their own words, lift up in men's glory. Then we have the capacity that uh, Ames referring to leavening in the form of you are mixing that which is unleavened, but that's good, meaning some, some of the good things that God asked you to do or told us to do with that which is not good and shoving it together. And as a result, oppressing or putting your will upon those who are below you and which lifts you up too. These are different forms. Uh, none of them are positive. All four different types are, are not good leavening. Well, in order to understand a good, good comprehension of what he wanted for unleavening, what does that mean in God's eyes, in God's terms? So in Exodus 13, go back to Exodus 13, it discusses in chapter 6, sorry, verse 6 through 10. Exodus 13, it says, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there should be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread should be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened should be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be, see, be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve as a sign to you on your hand, and as a reminder on your forehead, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Stop there for a minute. Now, I have this underlined. It says in the, the section, it says, uh, the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. So keep in mind here, think about, imagine yourself a moment, you're eating unleavened bread. So the idea, the symbols behind eating unleavened bread is what is in your mouth then? That which is unleavened. The bread that's unleavened is what you're eating. That's what's in your mouth. He's pointing out that the, the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. So he's referring to unleavened bread is a symbol for the law of the Lord. The idea that if you are eating unleavened bread, consuming that, that's what's in your mouth as you're eating it. The law of the Lord is what is in your mouth as you're eating it. So the idea is that you are living off of or you're consuming through this time period. The law of the Lord is what is going in your mouth. That's what you're living off of. That's what you're consuming. So this is a pretty obvious setup as far as what God did here is when he divided out Egypt from that which is leavened versus that which is unleavened, Israelites were supposed to live on that which is unleavened. The idea of that is they were supposed to live off the law of the Lord is in their mouth. That's their, uh, their, their food, their consumption, their nourishment. That's what this was based upon. The other leavens, which Egypt was known for, both proudness within Pharaoh, as well as the sexual misconduct of how individual people conducted themselves in Egypt, we have various examples of that, including Potiphar's wife is a good example as well, um, of how conduct is separated out. And the idea is that you will live off of not that bad conduct, but you live off the kind of the law of the Lord. So a pretty strong connection here that, that God's intent for the symbol of unleavened bread, at least in the Torah is concerned, is that it is symbolic of the law of the Lord. 
And I've down here also recorded, uh, you, if you can see it well here, um, we have in First Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, it said, he records, this is verse 8 of chapter 5, verse 8, it said, he, therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, with mal- we had already read this earlier, not with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the Apostle Paul, his comments, his viewpoint, which is not actually any different than the Torah's, it just uses different words. He associates unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. Therefore, if we use those two equations, meaning the law that will be in your mouth and bread of sincerity and truth, both are unleavened bread, that's what you will eat. So the idea is that the law that will be in your mouth is sincerity and truth, or it's being sincere and truthful. So that's what you will live on. You will live off the law of the Lord. You will be truthful and you'll be sincere. And that's the intent. So we have the Apostle Paul doing this great equation when he combined the unleavened bread with sincerity and truth. Therefore, we know that the law of the Lord that Moses gives is sincerity and truth. That's the, that's the idea of the symbolism behind that Apostle Paul gave to us, which is very helpful. So that's, that's the pretty obvious intent. Unleavened bread is designed to be the law of the Lord and supposed to be sincere and truthful. Note the leavening examples I gave you earlier Oh, what were they? Were any of them sincere and truthful? Clearly not. Uh, in the form of Pharaoh being proud, was he sincere and truthful? No, he was actually insincere. How many times did he tricked Moses? Oh, yes. Oh, no, I won't. Obviously, there's no truth in his words. There's no sincerity in his words. In the form of upon Pharaoh's wife, the example of Pharaoh's sexual misconduct that she had, as well as the sexual misconduct listed in Leviticus 18, are any of them truthful or sincere and truthful? Well, they were sincere in their own right. I mean, they really want this, this sexual desire. But possibly equated sincerity truth as well as law of the Lord. So clearly, though they may be sincere in their personal sexual desires, uh, and they may truthfully desire those things, it's against the law of the Lord. So it tells us that sincerity and truth must also be brought into or equal to the law of the Lord as a combined thing. So, Someone who's sincerely and truthful about their sins and wickedness, they want to be sincerely wicked and want to be sincerely, they're truthful about the sincerity of wickedness, is not necessarily good. You can be sincere and truthful having no goodness in you. You can be sincerely and truthfully full of wickedness and you enjoy it and you love it. You're living in your sins. We, are, we, we, we have an equal equation on the other side. Well, if those things that you are sincere and truthful about are full of wickedness, you are not equal to the law of the Lord being in your mouth because he does not tolerate such things. Therefore, the state of truth has to be within the context of the law of the Lord being in your mouth. That's what you live by. So the, and also the examples, of course, uh, which uh, the, the, the Apostle Paul had addressed the, the, the people, the, uh, the citizens of, of Corinth and the, their leavening that they had, uh, the, the plugging oneself up, they may have been sincere and truthful within the idea that they, you know, they forgive this man for his sexual misconduct. Hey, you know, for everybody, that may be true. That may be sincere, may be truthful in their own right. But because it breaks the law of the Lord, therefore it is not unleavened. You see, you cannot have leaven, so unleavened bread is sincere and truthful and break the law of the Lord at the same time. You can't do that. Those two equations are no longer equal. We have Exodus 13 and 1 Corinthians 5. These things have to be the same. The law of the Lord must equal sincerity and truthfulness. They cannot be separated. So being on one side of the equation, you have to be on the other side too, else you are not on either. You've actually broken it. There's no longer equal thing. These two things are no longer equal anymore. Being sincerely forgiving and truthful about your forgivingness, which is great and all, but if you are still 
occupied and living, pumping yourself up as a process, and this sincere truthfulness of the forgiveness is breaking the law of the Lord, it's no longer sincere and truthful. You broke the, the equation. You broke the commandment in the process. Hence, Paul said, hit the person out. You're not supposed to associate with these people. Go away. You, you don't have an association with these people. You, you must separate yourself out of them. You can't, you can't combine this. These two groups don't work with each other. As Solomon stated, you know a man by his relationships, his friends. You don't know him. That's okay. Find out who he is by the people around him and who he keeps himself company with. That will tell you who he is. Therefore, he cannot be a righteous, holy, great person if all of his friends are unholy, evil, corrupt, sinful, sinful people which that's where Messiah came in, which is this issue. Okay, well, well, let's see, he has tax collectors and such, which were, you know, rotten people at the time, like mafia-esque type of people. But he kept associated with it. Well, what's wrong with this scenario? Well, that's the great thing about this process in that if your sins, which we said the good does not corrupt evil, but evil corrupts good. If your sins, you're a good person, but you associate with evil, you will fall down. You're, you will wear down. The difference between Messiah is somebody who's unique. The evil would attack, so to speak, meaning those who were against would attack, but he wasn't torn down. That's not normal. Men, me, people, flesh and blood, we get torn down with the people around us who are full of sin, full of transgression, full of iniquity. They wear on us and wear down our defenses. Messiah didn't have that problem. They didn't wear him down. He was greater than we are. It's one of the unique things about him. And the high priest, the Torah, is supposed to be that. This was the one in which sin comes to them on a regular basis, not that he conducts himself. His process is to receive the sin and then remove it from you. So he had this great ability, this uniqueness of being a high priest in nature, to take the, those who are sin and cleanse them. So he remakes the equation again, which is great. The Messiah takes the law of the Lord. This is what you must do. Say and truthful. Paul points out, hey, beware of the sincere and truthful side, guys. Watch what you're doing. That has to match the law of the Lord. Messiah comes along and says, yes, that's true. However, I have the ability to make your side of the equation correct, meaning cleanse it off. Paul can't do that. He can't make someone who is unholy and evil and corrupt become holy, holy and, and good. He's not Messiah. He doesn't have that ability. His solution was, well, you have to disassociate. Somebody who is choosing to live in evil, they must, they must be separated out. He can't just, he doesn't have that ability. That's the God gave to Messiah alone, as Messiah had pointed out with the, with the, the, the paralytic man, who is, you say, your sin forgiven you or give your bed and walk. He has power over both. The apostles weren't given power over both. Uh, they were given the power to heal and to direct and to instruct, but it still is a conduct of the person must continue to move forward. Conduct matters. That's what we got unleavened bread. Conduct matters. And that you live off of unleavened bread and therefore you live off of of uh, 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 the, the word of the Lord, the Lord being in your mouth. That's what we get that from, from Exodus, that you have to live off of unleavened bread. So you're eating that and that that's what's in your mouth as Exodus 13 says, and that you will, you will live by that. You will consume that as your own food. And we also have the idea that we have uh, uh, unleavened bread, the four different types of, sorry, first of all, leavening we discussed there are other subtlety versions, the four kinds, both from Egypt, the sexual misconduct, as well as the pride that Egypt, the Pharaoh had. And we had the loving that Apostle Paul talked about, about 
you know, forgive everybody. We're all good. We're all happy. You know, I associate with, with those who are, who, are, who are evil or not good, but it's okay because I forgive them all. That, that is still a form of leavening. We have the leavening that the, that the uh, uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees ran across, which was the uh, uh, make, uh, make others glory themselves. So you will glory the Pharisees, Sadducees to lift them up, how great they are. That's a form of leavening. We have the leavening that, that Amos talked about that I will blend both good and bad together in the process, oppress you, lifting myself up. That's a form of leavening. So we discuss those components. Then we discuss the nature of uh, unleavened bread, that you will eat that that's in your mouth. And God so the Lord, you know, the law will be in your mouth. You will live and consume that. And Apostle Paul points out that sincerity and truth is equal to that leavened piece, unleavened piece of bread. So we have the law of the Lord, equals unleavened bread, equals sincerity and truth. They're all equal of each other. So combine them as one thing. You can't have one and discard the other two. It doesn't work that way. We're going to conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you for your kindness and blessing upon each of your people and each of us. Father, we ask you to bless us and keep us safe. Help us make good decisions, Father. We thank you for teaching us well, to instruct us in our life and our way of living, how to live and how to live properly as best we can, Father. For you are kind to us, and that is your practice. May you continue to forgive our mistakes, Father. Continue to bless us and hold us dear to you and to your heart as we hold you to ours. Father, help us to be wise, good people. We praise you and ask your blessing on the, our rest of our fellowship as best we can for our Zoom meeting, as well as our time of praise and of worship. We glory, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.